Oh my god, I thought that first experience was intense. Woo! Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 180 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining us for the continuation of this two-part Breaking Bloody episode where we've assigned ourselves the task of understanding the role that spicy flavors play in everyone's favorite brunch time sipper, the Bloody Mary. If you didn't join us for our last episode, well, that's pretty much assigned listening at this point, so please go back and check it out because we're going to be referencing some stuff like benign masochism and chemisthesis again, and I don't want you to feel lost. Also, you need to meet our panel of experts and thrill-seekers who've agreed to serve as our guides on this Pequent journey. Last episode, Capsaicin was the star of the show, but this time around, we're going to begin by doing a deep dive on horseradish, which is the type of spice that you're going to find in Bloody Marys in places where you have a lot of people of Eastern or Northern European descent, or in places where there's a strong seafood culture, since horseradish is a common pairing with oysters and other seafood, as well as a primary flavoring in cocktail sauce. Here's a catch, though. Horseradish doesn't operate the same way that capsaicin does. It's got its own set of active chemicals, and anyone who's ever experienced the intense peppery nose rush from eating too much horseradish or wasabi knows that it's not even remotely the same sensation as biting down on a hot pepper. Here's our friend Sarah Kolk from Silver Spring Foods explaining exactly what horseradish is and how it operates at the chemical level. Horseradish closest plant relatives are the mustard family um, and other cruciferous vegetables which are referred to in the ag sector as coal crops. So that would be like broccoli, um, Brussels sprouts, cabbage. So a lot of these things that are related Two horseradish contain similar compounds called glucosinolates, which is a huge class of compounds. Sinegrin is the glucosinolate that's responsible for the very hot flavor that you get out of mustard or horseradish versus some of the other glucosinolates that don't yield as intense of flavor compounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems to be the case because you know you're dropping. Brussels sprouts and cabbage and broccoli and none of those things to me have a spicy flavor whatsoever and I I think most people would agree with that evaluation so what is it about horseradish that kind of generates that spice where the other where some other members of that family maybe with mustard being sort of the noteworthy um, exception you know what what causes that spice where the other things don't have it Well, maybe we should step back and talk more about the plant biology of this group and understand that the glucosinolate molecules are a natural plant defense. So they vary in their chemical characterization. So it's really just the chemical moiety that you get from hydrolyzing the most prominent glucosinolate in horseradish and mustard, uh, synegrin, once that's acted upon by an enzyme. 
Um, we're getting a little technical here. <laughs> Is that what you mean by hydrolyze? Does the enzyme go in and hydrolyze? So what happens is the enzyme myrosinase is stored in a separate part of the cell from the glucosinolate. And when that plant tissue is disturbed, as if being bit by an insect, or in our case, grinding and preparing the horseradish here on site, it isn't until those separate components of the cell are disturbed and allowed to interact that the horseradish becomes spicy. So horseradish actually is not spicy until you chew it or macerate it in some way. And that is because it's a glucosinolate backbone acted upon by an enzyme. And then your final spicy flavor compound, this will be a mouthful as well, it's called allyl isothiocyanate. We call it AITC for short. So the interesting thing about it, horseradish, is that it's a root vegetable. It's, it's quite stable when stored under the right conditions. But once you prepare the horseradish, that flavor compound AITC is actually a very chemically reactive species. So it's really difficult to keep a high quality product on the shelf and available for consumers. But we've been able to, through our research, provide, the, provide customers with a product that really lasts on the shelf or in the refrigerator uh, and really give them the product that they deserve. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that in, in a few moments here, but uh, a couple things about what you said just really, really got me thinking. So it seems like, you know, one thing that we haven't really mentioned here is that horseradish is a root. And, you know, we're talking about all these other members of this plant family like mustard. You know, we're using the mustard seeds. Those are seeds, not roots. We're eating the broccoli tops, not the seeds or really the root. You know, so, so uh, horseradish is a root. And, and I'm guessing that if, if this seems to be some sort of evolutionary uh, defense mechanism against predation for this. Uh, is there some sort of uh, pest that would go into the roots and, uh, you know, so, sort of predate this plant that, that this mechanism is developed in response to? Um, yeah, and that's all pretty regionally based. So I myself, I'm not a farmer. We have a, we have an effective pest program. We have an effective weed program, and that's all taken care of by our farmers. But yes, there are underground pests that would be able to attack these plants, hence them developing the, the mechanism. Right. And, and we come across this time and time again in the flavor world. I mean, that's sort of how many uh, spices and herbs and even things like spicy peppers, you know, that's sort, sort of sort of why they've evolved some of these flavors and aromas that they have. Now, we humans are just sort of a little bit weird in the animal kingdom in that a lot of these things don't seem to bother us. And in fact, we find reasons, whether you know, conscious or unconscious to gravitate toward these flavors and these chemicals that, uh, that actually, you know, ward off other pests. Now I've actually heard that the, the aroma, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that the aroma of cut grass is sort of like a distress signal to other 
grass in the area saying like hey there's some bad stuff going on over here maybe do a thing uh so we love this smell but it actually it's 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 sort of like the the tears and and wails of of grass that that we have just sort of slaughtered wholesale so uh you know it really does paint a different picture of the flavor and aroma world that that we so enjoy but regardless of regardless of how we should feel about uh the, the screams of grass blades or the evolutionary uh defense mechanisms of the horseradish root you know we've talked about what gives it this spicy kick but can we talk a little bit more about what makes this horseradish spice different than say a spicy pepper spice yeah definitely so the volatility of the molecule AITC is really the driving force of why you feel that intense piquancy in your nasal cavity from horseradish. So that's not atypical of a flavor compound to interact with your olfactory receptors, your sense of smell. We wouldn't, taste would not be very interesting at all without your sense of smell. The unique thing about the AITC flavor molecule is that it's also a potent irritant to your nasal cavity. So once you put it in your mouth, it's a small molecule, it evaporates easily, and you find this flavor overwhelming your nasal cavity more so than it would be your oral cavity, as is the case with capsaicin. Now that we know how horseradish operates on the palate, I think it's only fair that I and my daring producer, Sarah, give it a little test drive. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, Eric. How you doing? I am doing pretty well. Uh, now, you and I are here together today to repeat one of the most popular parts of our last Breaking Bloody episode, which is our comparative tasting. And uh, this time, we're not going to be tasting through Worcestershire sauce. Uh, why don't you tell folks at home what we're going to be doing? Sure, sure. So everyone, what we're going to be doing today is uh, having a wonderful taste of the Silver Spring Prepared Horseradish in uh, two different forms, if you will. Uh, I'm excited to dive into it. I'm sure you are as well. Yeah, but before we do, uh, I wanted to just sort of see where you stand with horseradish. I know I know that you hadn't really tasted Worcestershire sauce on its own. To be fair, most people haven't. But, uh, but what about horseradish? Have, have you uh, encountered this condiment in the wild in the past? Right, yeah. Um, thankfully, yes. This is not my first rodeo with horseradish. Um, I love oysters, and it. I love putting it on salads and, and stuff like that. Um, so I have dabbled in the horseradish world before, um, but I haven't really gone in and actually tried it itself. I'm, I'm a little nervous to do that for sure, but I know that it's going to be great for um, this episode and, and us understanding horseradish itself a little bit more. Yeah. Well, and of course, uh, most people who have had seafood before, especially in the fried form, have, have gotten that little sampler of uh, cocktail sauce along with their dish. And, and horseradish is a big part of that. It's a big part of other condiments uh, from a lot of typically Eastern European um, cuisines. And being half Polish, I should actually have a better um, sort of stake in this than I do. But when I was growing up, we just didn't really have a lot of horseradish kicking around. Now, it is something I rather enjoy. Um, it's something that I, I really want to learn more about. So I, I guess the best way to do that is is probably going to be to taste. So do you want to just jump in and do the first one here? I think that it's time. I think we should do it. 
All right, so I'm gonna crack my my jar now. Now these uh, came courtesy of our friend Sarah at Silver Spring Foods, and uh, we were instructed to keep these. You know, they, actually a lot of care was taken in transit to keep these refrigerated, and so uh, we're gonna crack this open for the first time here, ensuring freshness. All right. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. That's exciting. So maybe we should start by just sort of. And, and don't breathe too heavily here, but maybe just <laughs> waft it in the direction of your nose and see what kind of an aroma you get. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's really powerful, uh, but besides that sort of powerful horseradish smell, like, are there any food words or, like, sensory, like, flavor metaphors that you can use to describe what you're smelling? Yeah, so I know... You know, I can smell the vinegar that it sits in. And for some reason, my brain wants to say oranges. And I really think that it's just because of the citrusy component in it. For some reason, I, I do get a citrus um, scent. Um, yeah. It's interesting that you say that because, uh, of course, vinegar is an example of a volatile acid, acetic acid. It sort of gives off little aroma molecules as you smell it. Uh, and so it makes sense that you can sense that. But yeah, I'm I'm getting something maybe lightly floral in the background. Like there's that intense, not sulfuric, but sort of sulfur adjacent stank to it. Then you get the acetic acid. And then there's something kind of like really floral and, and playful in the background for me. Um, and I don't think I've ever just nosed straight horseradish before. So this is, that was kind of a, a cool surprise. Right. Yeah, that initial, um, when I cracked open the, the bottle myself, when it all first flew into my nose, it was really interesting. You know, obviously I, I smelled the horseradish itself, right? That, this root. But then us diving into it a little bit more, I'm picking up, oh, there's a note of this. Like like you said, that playful, I sent something very light towards um the end of this the scent itself yeah i get i get almost like a little bit of a sweetness on it too like a honey or an almond like sweetness and again we haven't even tasted this yet but it's it's um it's a surprisingly complex experience and you know i I guess the last thing i should note is that you know part of the peppery aroma that we are picking up doesn't necessarily come from like a a pepper element there's no pepper or capsaicin in this per se um, but there is that sort of mustardy, uh, compound in there that, it, that the horseradish root shares in common with mustards and with other, um, you know, plants in the sort of broccoli cauliflower family. Um, and so I, I definitely also get that. So this is of course true to, you know, my past experiences of horseradish, but you know, taking a closer look at it, and, and maybe it's the quality, maybe it's just the Silver Spring, but maybe it's just slowing down to take the time. I'm, I'm really enjoying some of the other stuff that's hiding, like you said, in the background. Ready for uh, Spoons Up? <laughs> I'm going right. to have to be, right? <laughs> yeah. So this is, uh, I'm just going to take maybe, maybe a, I'll show you on camera, like the the size of the little dollop I'm taking. Okay. Um and uh, I would just say, uh, be gentle to yourself. And, and if anybody is like us doing this at home, have some water on hand. Because if you take a straight hit of horseradish to the face, it's going to be something. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Wow. Woo! 
Oh wow. my gosh, my eyes are watering. Did you um did you make the mistake of breathing in as you uh as you ate it? I must have. I did something that uh that caused this just extreme wasabi like reaction. Yeah, you're tearing up a little bit. That's okay. Um I, I was a I was very careful with my uh with my chewing and I managed to avoid the nose rush that I think you got. I still definitely got the rush. Um and yeah, you, you know, it's it's interesting knowing about what other plants are in the family with the horseradish root because as I sort of chewed this, I almost got the freshness of like a raw broccoli. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. If you ever have like raw broccoli in a salad and you you chomp down and you uh, you really grind up those little florets with your teeth, you get something that's very similar to the, the flavor that I got. Um, did you notice any, besides the intensity of, of what it was, did you notice any other flavors or aromas? Um, I wish I could pinpoint flavors or aromas more. They were very, very similar to what I could smell, pick up on the nose. Yeah. I think the only thing that really stood out was just the texture of it itself. It's interesting because it is very pulpy, you know, and but other pulp-like experiences that I've had, like like I mentioned, oranges, orange juice, um, this is a very different experience and i think it's just because it's in a different setting um and its intentions are different than what a fruit would be so yeah yeah (laughs) for sure um one of the things that i'm noticing on the quote-unquote finish i don't know if horseradish is said to have a finish but um i do get that sort of bright citrusy it for me it's it's not an orange in but it's like a very lemony uh kind of flavor on right on the back of my palate it's it's uh and i think you know, just riffing here because we're talking about the Bloody Mary. Uh, you know, you got lemon in the Bloody Mary. That's that's kind of a nice little flavor marriage to have. You know, it's kind of a, a way to blend your your horseradish into some of the other flavors that are in there. So um, that was a, a really cool experience. Uh, I don't think I've ever tasted horseradish just on its own with no chaser before. Um, but we'll be right back to taste the Silver Spring Extra Hot prepared horseradish. While producer Sarah and I give ourselves a couple minutes to recompose our taste buds and olfactory receptors, there are a few other things I want to cover about horseradish. One of the things that blew my mind as Sarah from Silver Spring Foods explained how to release the spicy flavor in horseradish is the simultaneously inert and dynamic properties of this plant. It reminds me of that little vial of poison that gets broken when you check in on Schrodinger's cat, or perhaps the chemical reaction in those stain removers that have two separate pore spouts on the same bottle to keep the different detergents separate until you combine them on your spaghetti sauce stained shirt, or maybe even the landmine that just kind of sits there until someone comes along and steps on it. One moment, horseradish is this boring, thick root that doesn't taste or smell like much. And then, as soon as you bring some simple physical agitation and combination to the game, the glucosinolate is hydrolyzed by the myrosinase enzyme and transformed into the volatile AITC compound that has been shown to repel everything from fire ants to large herbivores. Unlike spicy peppers, which seem to always have this weaponized quality, horseradish seems a little bit more like a mild-mannered Clark Kent walking by a telephone booth. You don't get Superman until you put the two together. 
But as much as I enjoy piling metaphors on top of one another, we're here talking to real scientists in this episode. So let's get back to Sarah Kolk, who has a few important notes to bartenders and home chefs who really want to make their horseradish shine. I was hoping that you could maybe just provide some basic uh, insights for our listeners of like if let's say they were to get a an unprepared horseradish root and they wanted to somehow preserve that or or use it in a culinary fashion whether that's a bloody mary or some other application like how should they treat that in the home in order to get the most bang for their buck from that uh, horseradish both flavor wise and then sort of like preservation wise well, I mean, I would direct them towards one of our products that's already been prepared and stabilized by us. But no, uh, there are do's and don'ts when it comes to storing horseradish, whether it's prepared already or whether it's, you know, in whole root form, which I don't think I've ever even seen at the store. So that can be hard to get your hands on. But um, as as we talked about a little bit earlier, it's it's a fairly stable thing to store, like most root vegetables. You want to keep it very close to freezing. This is the whole root I'm speaking of. Very close to freezing, but not frozen because the cells will burst and then it'll spoil faster. But if you can find the right climate to store a root vegetable in, you'll be able to hold that that root for some time. And then I would suggest preparing it as you're going to use it. You know, cut off a chunk and grate it. Traditionally, every horseradish preparation uses some form of acid, like vinegar or lemon juice. And that's actually, the pH is important when it when you're talking about what flavor compounds develop from that enzyme glucosinolate reaction. So you need to have a slightly acidic pH to get that desirable hot flavor in the sort of abundance that you would want out of your horseradish preparation. Yeah, and that makes sense, especially in the Bloody Mary format, because every Bloody Mary has some sort of acid component. So even if you are, you know, one of those DIYers out there who decides they're going to grate a little bit of fresh horseradish into the Bloody Mary situation, well, luckily we have a little bit of acid in there that's going to help with that. Is that, is that somewhat accurate? Yeah, um, the reaction does take a bit of time, so I'd be really interested to taste that Bloody Mary that you mentioned to see if you get get much heat out of it when you're just grating it right before serving. I'm sure some, you can take a horseradish root and and chew on it and that reaction starts to happen in your mouth. Um, water needs to be present uh, so in the form of saliva when you chew on a piece of horseradish root. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Hmm, that is interesting. So how long, so if, if someone were to take a piece of whole horseradish and, and get ready to use it in a Bloody Mary format, let's say as, you know, just something that folks could put in a, a teaspoon of and stir into their drink. Um, how, how long would they want that to rest on either the vinegar or, or rest with the vinegar or the um, the citrus juice in order to uh, be at peak flavor? Um, I guess it would, it may be different uh, in a benchtop or kitchen scenario, but I feel comfortable sharing that from my observations, about three days after the preparation is made is when it's the hottest. I don't, I don't know that you're necessarily, you know, we were talking about that earlier is, is the hottest necessarily what you're going for. You're, you're going to have flavor almost immediately, but that peak piquancy takes a little bit of time to develop. 
I found this part of our conversation particularly rich, especially for bartenders or beverage directors who want to make sure that their Bloody Mary program is head and shoulders above the competition. Here's a quick recap of the key takeaways. You need to store your horseradish in whole root form just below freezing for optimum stability. You need to acidify it in order to really bring out that flavor, and you need to leave it in acid for about three days in order to achieve peak piquancy. For our home cocktail enthusiasts out there, if you close your eyes right now and listen really closely, you can actually hear the brains of bartenders and beverage directors crunching numbers to figure out how they can implement this knowledge into their existing ingredient prep and service schedules. And this makes sense, right? The quest to attain and preserve maximum potency in your horseradish is an admirable one, to be sure, which reminds me that it's time for producer Sarah and I to face down the extra hot prepared horseradish provided to us by Silver Spring Foods. All right, Sarah, are you ready to jump into tasting number two of the extra hot prepared horseradish? I am prepared now. I will do this correctly. <laughs> well, I don't know that you did it incorrectly the first time. You just got a, you just got a good shot of it there. So uh, like we did, and, and I'm approaching this with even another layer of caution because this calls itself out on the label, extra hot. Add intense heat to deviled egg salsa and your favorite deli sandwiches. And uh, the little subtitle here underneath the, the product name is Serious Sinus Clearing Heat. Oh, right. Yeah, I guess it speaks for itself what it's going to do. Yeah, well, and so I'm going to nose it here just like we did the first one. Ooh. Kind of different, huh? You can't stick your face as close to this one as you could the other one. Um, Just because it's a little bit more... The strength of that heat pierces your nose a little bit more intensely. Yeah, it's almost, it's, it's slightly ammoniated. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in like a locker room or like a, you know, like a place that was being cleaned by somebody who has ammonia. Now, it doesn't have like the the sort of off or basic smell. And I, what I mean by basic is base versus acid smell of ammonia. But it does certainly have that so like sinus penetrating attribute. No, Absolutely. It still smells a little sweet to me. What what are you are you picking up anything besides that sort of like um that almost anesthetic nose prickle? There's nothing in particular that's jumping out at me. I think for some reason my m- me personally, I can't move past just how intense. I mean, I just took a whiff and one of my eyes just started watering. It's just I don't know if that's a chemical compound in horseradish, but whatever it is, it definitely um it hits a little different. It does. It does. Um, yeah, one of the things that I'm observing with this is that this just smelling it reminds me more of wasabi than the normal prepared horseradish. The normal prepared horseradish had a lot of those other flavor notes flying around. And this, to me, it has that sort of green, peppery, celery quality that wasabi has. And it's um, it's very, very intense. So... I guess now is the time to just sort of, uh, you know, dive in and, and try it, try it on the palate. So you ready to join me? Yes. All right. Cheers to this. Good luck. 
Oh, that's special. It <laughs> huh. both at the same time. Oh, yeah. my God. I thought that first experience was intense. Woo! Yeah, I'm starting to sweat now. Um, <laughs> you, you know, the interesting thing about taking something that intense, like with the horseradish, as opposed to something like eating a super hot pepper, is that it 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 fades. The half-life of that spice really goes away much more quickly, which is which is nice in a sense. It means that you can sort of you get that really intense rush. But then because it goes away so quickly, you forget about it almost. And then you're like, oh, I guess I'll have another another one of those. And right, then it's sort of right. like this 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 cycle. Um what did you what did you think besides just the the intensity or was it just so loud that all you could hear is uh the 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 bass the amp like you're <laughs> sitting next to the amp at a concert right um no what's what's interesting is that it did have a slightly different flavor um like you said you know it it comes and goes very quickly which is really awesome i think that's part of the reason why people love consuming things like this is because they want that rush again right it's like that's why you keep on going on roller coasters because you want to get to the top of the hill again. Um, something that I noticed though um, is that I looked at the ingredients. The only difference is like soybean oil between these two. I don't understand how that creates such a huge difference. I don't know if that's a timing thing as well. If if they sit differently, um, but it was it's really interesting to think about the fact that these are so similar. There's only one ingredient difference and yet the experience of both of these was drastically different. That's fair. Um yeah, I, that's a really smart call out. I was going to bring that up if you didn't with the soybean oil. Yeah, so just to just to read literally the the ingredients. So going comparing these two that we tasted, we've got in both horseradish, distilled vinegar and water are the first three ingredients. And usually uh, for folks at home, if you're reading an ingredient label, they generally, although I don't know that there's a law about this, but they generally list ingredients in descending order of like how much is in there. So uh, then the fourth ingredient on the extra hot is the soybean oil. And then that's followed by salt and natural flavor. So, and the same thing on the, the regular prepared, it's just doesn't have that soybean oil. So, you know, if I had to guess, what I would say, you know, knowing that we have food scientists literally behind the scenes developing these products is that there's something about that soybean oil that preserves that intensity um, so that it doesn't decay as quickly. If I had to guess, the regular prepared horseradish would probably have a very similar flavor right off the line. But then that sort of naturally just degrades a little bit over time. Um, so if I had to get, I mean, again, just speculation, but uh, I think it was really smart that you you pulled out that that difference in ingredients. Uh, and I do agree that it's um, it it makes it makes for a, a drastically different flavor experience, uh, which which makes me wonder, um, having tasted these two and thinking about the Bloody Mary as a cocktail, um, what do you think? Are you a fan of horseradish and Bloody Marys? Like, how do you think you would employ this at maximal effect in the Bloody Mary world? Sure. So even though those experiences were pretty extreme for me, I love it. I love spice. I love it when food is an experience or a beverage is an experience. And with a Bloody Mary, I mean, when it's not spicy, I, I feel like 
this is gonna sound rough, but it doesn't have as much of a purpose. You know, it obviously, you know, the hangover cure, yada yada, but when it's got that spice, when it has that extra edge, it makes it all worth it. And for me, if I was making myself a bloody, I would honestly use the extra hot just because I know that um, pairing it with the tomato juice and, you know, the, the umami factor in it, everything like that, I think that that's the level of spice that I personally would want in a bloody because that's the experience that my intention of drinking a Bloody Mary is paired with. Yeah. So you like, you like the spice and, and, you know, there's nothing that, that says you need to use as much of the extra hot as you would the regular prepared. I mean, I could, I could see both of these working really well in a Bloody Mary because we did, like I said uh, earlier, we, we got some of those other kind of flavor notes uh, more strongly in the, in the normal prepared as opposed to the extra hot. So I think there's something to be said for different types of horseradishes being used. So Sarah, th thanks for tasting through these uh, intense little specimens with me and uh, we will talk soon. Sounds good, thanks so much for having me again. We've come to the point in this two-part series where it's time to start synthesizing some of the things we've learned about chemisthesis, spice perception, horseradish chemistry, and benign masochism to see if we can understand in a big picture way the role that spice plays in the Bloody Mary. Because if I had to guess, when bartender Pete Pechu included his first few dashes of black pepper and cayenne pepper in his original Bloody Mary, he did so based solely on instinct. He didn't know what we know now about the chemical and biological structures responsible for the flavors that we love. So I think we have a genuine opportunity here to veer off from the trail of breadcrumbs our mixological ancestors left for us and strike out for new and exciting places. Here's Dr. Alyssa Nolden's thoughts on what subjects we might study to better understand the specific mechanisms that govern the relationship between the Bloody Mary and the hangover symptoms that it's often deployed to combat. So... Knowing that a, um, a prototypical Bloody Mary cocktail contains alcohol, ice, multiple acids, usually in the form of tomato juice and then generally some sort of citrus or vinegar, uh, some sort of umami flavor, often fermented, uh, most popularly it's Worcestershire sauce, and then um, some sort of spice or capsaicin either um, in the form of hot sauce actually in the drink or you know, possibly something moving into the, the piperine spectrum with, with a rim coating. Can you think of any interesting variable manipulated studies that, that could be conducted in a perfect world uh, if you had, say, infinite funding and a thousand test participants in every, you know, experiment? Yes, this is a really good question. I love thinking about hypothetical uh, research questions. And I, when I was thinking about this question, I had two things that I was curious about. One, I think it would be great to see how many people actually find this to be beneficial or helpful. So can, can you create a hangover or kind of recreate a hangover for different, for all these participants and give them uh, maybe everything but capsaicin or everything but ethanol? and then test out to see if it's the capsaicin, see if it's the ethanol, or is it just, you know, the high concentration of, of vegetables, you know, you're, you know, kind of giving your, your body 
the nutrients it needs to recover from the toxins. But I also wondered about the heat level. Is something like a, a higher heat level helping you to, you know, perspirate more or something? So like, you know, give maybe the same subject on different days of their hangover or, or after a couple of different hangovers and test different concentrations of capsaicin and see if um, it's really just the capsaicin alone that can kind of revive you. So that's kind of what I was um, thinking about with this question, um, mainly just varying the the spice or capsaicin level. But I think you brought up a really good question of the horseradish. If we had different chemesthetic agents, um, you know, mint or menthol is another one. So it would be very interesting to see if um, it's a trigeminal uh, effect or does it have to be a specific uh, receptor like trip B1 or can it be any trigeminal uh, agonist there? So um, a lot of different fun uh, questions that you could do uh, with the with this here. Yeah, of course, this perfect world seems like one that, that would also not contain internal review boards that would object to you giving people hangovers. <laughs> yes, that would be tricky. I would have to look up to see if there's any way to cause like an equivalent of a hangover. So there's, um, we're not allowed to cause participants pain, but an approved way of doing a pain threshold test is called cold water immersion. So I'm wondering if there is an approved way of uh, recreating kind of a, a hangover here. <laughs> when you get two scientists in two separate rooms and they say very similar things about nutrients and the need to distract yourself from the physical pain and discomfort of a hangover, you can assume one of two things. Either they colluded beforehand and got their stories straight before the interrogation or there just might be something significant going on here. Let's hear Sarah Kolk's take on the hangover question. What do you think is going on at a physical level, whether that's a chemical or a biological level, or even maybe just a psychological level, uh, even though even though that's someplace that you're, you're maybe not as, as comfortable going, uh, what, what's happening in my body and in my brain that might be making me feel a little bit better? Well, I think an important thing to address about a hangover is part of its dehydration, right? And electrolytes are crucial to hydration. So even though it's maybe not the best idea to overload yourself with sodium, your body isn't very good at distinguishing, you know, I should really have more calcium and magnesium and potassium right now. Also, tomatoes do have a fair amount of potassium. So there's that aspect. I mean, craving salt when you're dehydrated is, is a pretty common phenomenon. As far as, you know, the hair of the dog aspect that people consume Bloody Marys for, I think that's always been a really effective strategy when you're trying to dull one sense, like, you know, the, the dull pains, maybe a headache or body ache that you would be experiencing with a Bloody Mary. Maybe I'd even liken it to, you know, biting a rag while you're having a bullet removed in a movie, you know, like <laughs> activating that trigeminal system could maybe distract from some of the discomfort. I like you know, it. when you're when you're hungover, you you want your comfiest sweatpants, you want a Netflix binge, you want tasty food, you just want to chill with your fuzzy blanket and 
have all of the comfort, have all of the, the best things, and Bloody Mary fits in perfectly with those. There's nothing truly controversial about all this talk of nutrients and vitamins, right? The Bloody Mary has always been perceived as a health-adjacent, if not truly healthy, cocktail. So, I mean, great, vitamins and minerals. But what about spice? When I'm feeling crummy already, why do I want hot sauce or horseradish in my glass? Here's Dr. Nolden's thoughts on nausea and locating some sort of Goldilocks zone for spice in a Bloody Mary. One of the things that I'm chiefly interested in is, you know, assuming that the Bloody Mary has had staying power as a culinary cocktail uh, for certain reasons and as a hangover cure for certain reasons, you know, I'm wondering if there's anything about capsaicin or piperine or ethanol that might be working together to generate something that you might call like a phase shift in the way that a person feels before and after drinking because I'm sure that in the lab you know you'll see people get like fit like have a physical you know very physical reaction to some of these compounds some do you have any thoughts on that and they you these don't have to be scientifically supported we're not making any uh, claims here that are going to be submitted to peer-reviewed journals Yes, this is a really interesting question, and I was thinking about it a bit and thinking about what what the ingredients were. But if you just take a look at some of what the participants would say after sampling just capsaicin or capsaicin and water, I mean, they start to perspirate, and um, you know, you really get to want to drink a lot of water. And but if you give them too much, you know, it can cause them to be nauseous. So um, we did do a study where they had to consume Bloody Mary mix, and a lot of the participants were reporting, you know, feeling nauseous afterwards. So there must be like a balance, because um, obviously if you're hungover, you don't really want to be, um, you know, nauseous from drinking all of this. So it's kind of an interesting uh, balance, I think. But I do think that maybe some spice, some spice or some capsaicin could help to kind of jolt your system a little bit and give it a little kick. Um, but I'm really curious to see if that would be the same across individuals because we do see, you know, differences in our participants' rating of intensity. Um, and we can show differences in liking as well as capsaicin. There are some individuals who will rate a pretty moderate liking of just pure capsaicin in water. So I'm thinking that there could be something with, for some individuals, you know, this type of Bloody Mary mix, this uh, spice in this Bloody Mary could be very reviving. Um, but maybe for some individuals, it's not that perfect cure. So I'd be really interested to study that. If you think back to our work with benign masochism, you might recall Paul Rosen's finding that people tend to enjoy levels of spice that are just below what they can comfortably tolerate. And if you assume that your spice tolerance when you're hungover is probably a bit lower than it might be otherwise, then I think Dr. Nolden's assumption would probably hold up. My guess is, without having run any experiments, that a moderate level of spice in a Bloody Mary probably yields optimum benefits without pushing you over the edge into nausea. But what is moderate? What's moderate to me might not be moderate to you, which raises questions about the inherent unknowability of flavor experiences.
I think the most interesting thing about talking with participants about capsaicin is um, the, how we talk about it to each other. Um, you know, capsaicin is very, um, can be very tricky to talk about, right? When you're saying, oh, what I just had was so spicy or so hot, you know, that can mean so many different things to different individuals. So I think it's you no know, fun when you're talking to your, um, now we're in, whoever's in your home, right? With the pandemic, you might not be talking to too many other people, but, um, you know, about how we talk about uh, food experiences or things like capsaicin or heat, if you, if you do consume hot sauce at home, um, how we talk about our experiences and it can be so different. We can say the same word, but our experience could be very different. Um, or we could be having the same experience, but how we describe it could be very different. The worry here, of course, is that no matter how hard we try to study the experience of spice, we're always going to be talking at cross purposes. My spicy will never be your spicy, and your spicy, let's be honest, will probably never approach our friend John Shope's definition of spicy. And when you look at things that way, it's very easy to gaze too long and too intently into the postmodern abyss of infinite regress. But I think the Bloody Mary is actually the perfect foil to this intellectual trap. No two recipes are the same, and yet we rarely feel anxious about ordering one from a bar in the same way that we might feel anxious about ordering an old-fashioned or a martini. Unlike our favorite boozy stirred drinks, the seemingly infinite variations of the Bloody Mary seem to all aggregate into some sort of universally shared mean or ideal of goodness that exists regardless of capsaicin or horseradish, regardless of A1 or Worcestershire, regardless of all the other choices that we could possibly make in its formulation. I might be wrong, but I think that goodness arises not from a particular ingredient or even from a proportional balance between ingredients, but from an emergent energy or propulsion generated from the combination of these disparate forces when they coalesce in the glass. What do I mean by that? Well, remember back when we talked about benign masochism and uncovered the almost paradoxical finding that the experience of pain increases our sensitivity to and liking of various tastes and flavors? Whenever I run into a paradox like this, I think of it like a motor, where two opposite polarities of an electromagnet keep turning over and over upon one another, which turns the drive shaft and propels the vehicle forward. These little motors are some of my favorite things to think about, especially when they happen in the taste and flavor world. If you're hungover, and you sip a spicy Bloody Mary, each sip enacts something that might be compared to one revolution of a drive shaft. Moderate spice creates moderate pain, which both distracts you from the symptoms of your hangover and provides greater appreciation of the other flavors in the drink, which prompts you to take another sip where the process is repeated until before you know it, you've finished your cocktail. As you look at your empty glass and appreciate the kind green of your celery stick garnish, your server, or your host stops by and asks if you'd like another, mentioning that your chicken and waffles will be ready in just a few minutes. You say yes, and as the words leave your mouth, you realize that you're not the same person that you were when you took the first sip of your Bloody Mary. This is the definition of a phase shift. Before the Bloody Mary, you were one person, and now you are a decidedly different one, 
with a decidedly different set of homeostatic feelings. Did the sodium and potassium and vodka and other nutrients and lubricants in the drink do their work? Of course. These can be compared to the transmission and fuel system and frame of a vehicle that allow it to transport you from point A to point B. But I would argue that the driving force in a Bloody Mary, the motor that turns due to the opposing forces of pain and pleasure, can only be attributed to spice. In the presence of moderate amounts of pepper, hot sauce, or horseradish, pleasure emerges from pain, motion from stillness, and although there are many ways to describe our experiences of spice and many different preferences for what provides that spice or how intensely we perceive it, one thing is for sure. If you ain't got no motor, you ain't got no car. And if you ain't got no spice, I'd argue, you ain't got no Bloody Mary. On behalf of myself, our talented Breaking Bloody producer, Sarah Baker, and the rest of the Modern Bar Cart team, I'd like to thank our guests for helping to guide us along our hot and zesty journey in this two-part series. Here's a few last words from our dear friend, John Shope, to play us out. I guess my, my last ask is, um, you know, do, do you have any advice for anyone who wants to uh, maybe get better at, uh, at eating or enjoying spicy things? Absolutely. Practice, 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 and uh, don't go big all the way uh, firsthand because that'll traumatize you. This sort of thing that I just did is not uh, the sort of thing that everybody can do. Okay, and it's also about knowing your body. I think some people, they push it so far that, you know, and then they keep going. And that's where you uh, you, you can really kind of get into some trouble there, um, where it takes days to recover. Um, and you don't need to do all that. I say go slow and steady, experiment with hot sauces, go somewhere that has a lot of hot sauces and work your way up through the thresholds, try the different flavors, but you gotta go out there and try it. So you got to try it often because otherwise you're not going to adapt to it if you want to experiment with it. But I think like right now, this is living proof here that what you were witnessing, there's no reason to show off. You know, you, uh, you don't need to do this to yourself. You know, <laughs> as much as I like seeking it, there's no reason to want like how, where, where's the pleasure out of this at this point? The pleasure is going into it and getting through it. And I think once it's over, I'll feel like amazing. There's always this euphoric sensation, like almost like a high. And if you're trying to chase that, then by all means, dive in. So my assumption is that uh, for anyone who is, you know, out in out in Virginia, perhaps hiking on a sunny mountainside in the Monocacy Range, that you know they they might come across a you know a rocky outcropping that's you know, has a pleasant, pleasant green vista back when oh, they yeah. have leaves on the trees here. And they might, they might see reclining against the side of a tree, a, a man <laughs> with a Catoctin Creek distilling shirt and, uh, and a, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a, a red, white, and blue bandana or something like that. And, and so if you find yourself in, in such a position and, and should you happen to have on yourself a, a ghost pepper or perhaps a humble habanero that, should you see the spice guru of Loudoun County, you should you should probably stop and and offer him. It a, would mean a the world pepper. to me, guys. I would take it. I would have some right there with you. Go home and make an awesome sauce or salsa with it. 
I love it. I'm Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. I can't wait to see you back here for our next episode and for our eventual continuation of this Breaking Bloody project. But until then, remember, keep your horseradish in the fridge and wear gloves when you're slicing up dem peppers. Cheers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This two-part episode was edited and produced by Sarah Baker with capsaicin and flavor science insights courtesy of Dr. Alyssa Nolden, horseradish chemistry and samples thanks to Sarah Kolk and Silver Spring Foods, ill-advised hot sauce heroics by John Shope, and just a little bit of narration by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.